this episode contains descriptions of crime and violence and will not be suitable for all listeners. Hi Dan! Hi Katie! Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. Not singing today. No, I thought I'd go for a a more abrupt uh, (laughs) opening. How are you? Uh, Not too bad. Um, I think I'm suffering from a three-day hangover. Oh, from Brighton. Yeah, that did actually get quite messy in the end. I'm suffering from a cold, which is less exciting than a three-day hangover. Um, I don't know how I've managed to get a cold, seeing as it's only been autumn for two days. I feel like I've kind of had a cold coming on for about a week, but I'm fighting it off. I'm surprised it hasn't taken over. Maybe maybe it's it's making the hangover worse. But yeah, so that's all I've done for the bank holiday weekend, basically. Just feeling better. Yeah, Jing Lunsip. Oh boy, I thought maybe overcoming the COVID might have made you invincible to all viruses, but it hasn't. No, alas, not. But I, it, the one thing it has made me is like, I re- like the memory of having COVID. Oh yeah. So we realise how like this isn't that bad <laughs> because that was. Like, every time I have a cold, I'm like, I'm dying. <laughs> but now I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not dying, because COVID <laughs> was, like, the edge of death. Hopefully that will now be experiences of all viruses from now and just be like, oh, at least it wasn't... Yeah, at least it wasn't, at least it wasn't COVID. <laughs> Hashtag, at least it wasn't COVID. <laughs> but that's going to wear off soon, isn't it? By this time next year. Yeah, I mean, hopefully. But then again, you are... You are a woman and not a man, so you guys are much better. How does that... Oh, yeah. You guys are just much better at it. Yeah, whenever a man gets cold, he's like, hold me, this is the last <laughs> time I'm ever going to see you. <laughs> yeah, we do all just basically recreate like every uh, dramatic death scene in a war film ever. <laughs> and we're like, we have babies. Like... <laughs> Which is the equivalent of pissing out a golf ball, so that is impressive because I couldn't do that. I don't think there's any equivalent. Don't even say it's the equivalent of, because there is no equivalent. I just heard my best friend's, like, birth story. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds really stressful. Aspects there that would... uh, (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you, that sounds stressful. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know, maybe... If I did try to piss out a golf ball, maybe I would break down entirely. Maybe there would be... But then the golf ball doesn't, like, cry incessantly That's true, for, like, yeah. a year. And I don't need to look after that golf for 18 ball for the years. rest of my days. Well, for the rest of your life, really. Yeah. My mum's still looking after me, so I'm All 31. To... All you'd have to do is tee it off and you never see it again. Bye. <laughs> That's the equivalent of, like, sending your kid to boarding school. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so how's your uh, week been? Other than colds. Other nah. than the cold, it's been fine. Yeah, I went to... I saw the most family I've seen since lockdown, which is nice. Mm. Um, very socially distancy around a large area of outside. And I went to see some, like, um, immersive theatre, which is kind of like... It's a bit like a board game, but, like, in real life. Oh, nice. Which is That's usually one of my favorite things to do, but I don't think it really worked oh. as a like social distance activity because most of the time in immersive theatre you have to be like running around, like picking up a lot of stuff, like yeah, objects, yeah. like going to different tables, talking to people, and in this like you had to stay in your space and they had to come to you, and yeah, it just wasn't as like fast paced as it usually yeah. is, and yeah, didn't quite work. Also, they took the nineteen twenties as a um. As a reference, hmm. and obviously being me, when they choose like a <laughs> historical reference, I'm usually like, oh, maybe they, this will happen, or maybe they'll say this, or do this, or be dressed like this. And they said the F word a lot. Okay. And I was like, that's not very 20s. Yeah. That's And they use the word bruv and stuff. Oh, and okay. Like, well, that's definitely not 20s. I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, they're just picking up on the whole like Peaky Blinders phenomenal i'm trying to use it but actually like if you're gonna do 20s commit yeah commit like it's not that difficult to do 20s and there's some really inventive swearing back then just uh (laughs) just read gatsby and And put on the accents as well so what did how did your brighton um madness go down it was nice yeah we just went 
started off like quite civil. We just walked by the front and went to the uh, the pier. By the way, arcade absolutely packed. <laughs> There's definitely oh, going to yeah, be a second wave. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Oh my god, I've seen so many things that are just packed out and you're like, ugh. And then we went to a pub, pretty standard, and then just keep drinking until we fell over and puked. <laughs> so that was good. Nice. <laughs> but other than that, it was quite, uh, my week's been quite civilised. Watched, um, started watching the new series of, oh, what's it called? Um, War Factories, is it? Really interesting episode on how Fiat helped get Mussolini into power. Nice. They are still the kingmakers, it would seem. They were also kind of uh, responsible for, uh, oh, uh, what's his chops? Berlusconi. There you go. I knew it comes to me. Oh, Berlusconi. So they're just still doing it. They didn't learn their lesson. They were like, yeah, that Mussolini thing didn't work out very well. Let's have another go, though, with this chap, Berlusconi. Like, there's no learning. So learning from history, is there? <laughs> That's why we're here to not teach you <laughs> things from history. <laughs> Speaking of teaching you things from history, why don't you teach me things about history? Oh, sure. That's uh, uh that, w- that would be my. That's what pleasure. we're here to do. Dan. <laughs> so I just a surprise. Like, oh, okay. I thought we were just chatting. <laughs> so, have you ever heard of James Jimmy uh, Burke? No. I feel like I have, but I don't know. Has he got, like, another name? You will know the character that's based on him from the, I think it won Oscars, Oscar-winning film, maybe? Uh, Goodfellas. Oh, okay. Then, yes. (laughs) It's it's basically Robert De Niro's character. It's based on on James Burke. Okay. James, uh, in the film, he's called Jimmy Conway. Oh, okay, yeah. I think. But no, I haven't, I don't know anything about the real guy. Well, apart from what I know from Goodfellas, but... Yeah, like, I mean, like, most of it's quite accurate in that, so I'm basically... In a way, I'm just going to be telling the story of Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully slightly more story. <laughs> yeah. But, um... But I love how he's, he's described on, uh... By, uh, by one entry on the internet... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as my intro. So this week I'll be talking about the gangster, criminal mastermind, hitman, contract killer, mass murderer, mob enforcer, loan shark, extortionist, racketeer, hijacker, and drug trafficker, Jimmy Burke. Jimmy Burke. That's one hell of a CV. One that's hell one of hell of a, a business card. <laughs> that's going yeah, to flip out. <laughs> Just, yeah, like a roll. <laughs> so... Jimmy was born in Bronx, New York, as the illegitimate son of Jane Conway, a prostitute and immigrant from Dublin, Ireland. So, you know, this isn't... Yeah. We already know this isn't going to... This isn't going to go no. well, as all other hist- stories from history have uh, have shown us. Unfortunately, Jimmy never knew who his father was. He's never been identified, so no one knows still to this day. And at age two, he was placed in a foster home by his mother. So he spent most of his early years in a Roman Catholic orphanage run by nuns, and he would never see his mother again. Oh, fucker. We don't know who his father is, so that's it for the parents. (laughs) After this, he was shuttered around various foster homes where he suffered physical, mental, emotional, and sexual abuse at the hands of various foster fathers, foster mothers, and foster brothers. So, I mean, like, this is a good start. Pretty messed up upbringings. When he was 13 years old, one of Burke's foster fathers died in a car crash. He apparently he turned around to start hitting the young Burke and having taken his eyes off the road, lost control of the car and careened off the road. His foster mother survived and to get back at the young Burke subjected him to daily beatings and sexual, sexual abuse until he was taken back into care. I mean, this isn't going well. This, no. I mean, we can kind of see... Start. How this all happened. And I'm guessing his education was very stunted as well. Yeah, absolutely. So after this, he was finally adopted by the Burke family. So that's the name he adopted. Um, Living with them in a large wooden boarding house located on Rockaway Beach Boulevard. An ocean promenade in Rockaway, Queens. So this part of his life was said to be one of peace and calm. Something that he sorely needed and that his life up to that point of been sorely missing so as such he remained close to the burke family visiting his adopted mother and father each mother's day christmas and on their birthdays 
Each month, he would also send them several thousand dollars in in an unmarked envelope as appreciation for their attempt at at raising him. Attempt at raising him? Well, he was like about, he was in his teens by the time, so the damage was done. So like they they had a go trying to like fix him. But I think like that, that emotional scarring is well and truly uh, formed by them. So, despite finding some semblance of a stable family uh, home life, Jeremy began to get in trouble with the law uh, in his teens and spent considerable time in jail. So, in 1949, aged 18, he was sentenced to five years in prison for forgery. He'd been passing counterfeit checks for Dominic Sassani. when he was caught, he was offered a plea bargain, but refused to term, turn informant for the authorities. So this helped him gain favour amongst his mafia contemporaries. While in jail, he mixed with a number of mafia members, which helped him further ingratiate himself with the crime families of New York. And while not a member of the mafia, because he was uh, of Irish um, descent as opposed to Italian, and that's a mm-hmm. big thing in the in the mob, obviously. Yeah. He had one close mob member and friend, uh, and that was Capo uh, Paul Verio. So he was quite a, a senior member in the uh, in the mob. So this was his in. So Burke was uh, Burke has been described as a huge man. It's said to have had an immense and fearsome presence. Uh, he was big, buff, burly, and tall. He also had huge muscular arms. Uh, three previously working as a bricklayer, he stood at six foot five. And weighed oh, wow, yes, yeah, and weighed over two hundred and seventy pounds. So he's like a he's an actual wrestler, basically. He's like a pro wrestler. Yeah, like so he could have been. Uh, Should have been. Could have been. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, also had a horrendous temper. So unsurprisingly, he was taken on by the U- Lucchese crime family as an enforcer. He was known to be very p- nice, polite, and charming, but was also a stone cold killer and could flip <laughs> in a second. Yeah, that's like. That, yeah, that's what you need to be, though. To oh, yeah, absolutely. Also. So, Henry Hill, the author of the book Goodfellas is based on, described him thus. He was a big man and knew how to handle himself. He looked like a fighter and a warrior, and you could see it in his eyes. He was fearless when it came to fighting or killing a man. And he was terrifying, and he could intimidate any man he wanted. He had an evil, ice-cold stare that could petrify any man in the world, no matter who they were. If there was just one little amount of trouble, he'd be all over you in a second. He'd grab a guy's tie and slam his chin into the table before the guy even knew he was in a war. And he'd go to war with anybody, no matter who they were or who they were with. Jimmy was absolutely fearless. He wasn't scared of anybody or anything. Jimmy had a reputation for being fearless, brutal, sadistic. Nobody fucks with Jimmy Burke. He was the most vicious motherfucker you'd ever meet in your life. He could be the nicest guy in the world or your worst nightmare. Jim was a homicidal maniac. He was a psychopath and he was the worst of the worst. A vicious killer who would kill anybody without hesitation. Jimmy was wild and crazy. He'd whack anybody in a heartbeat. I mean, like, it's not the most uh, sophisticated piece of prose ever written, but I mean, like, it gets the point across, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's basically <laughs> it. Yeah, I, I kind of get the picture of him now. <laughs> if I hadn't already seen Goodfellas. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, as as Henry Hill said, Jimmy was uh, ruthless and brutal as an enforcer. So uh, his favorite trick to get the money that was owed to the uh, crime family he was uh, he was working for was to lock the debtor in a refrigerator until until they paid. Which I mean, uh, I mean that's a, that's a pretty good pretty good tactic. Wait, so where did he get this refrigerator? I don't I don't know. I, I, yeah, did, I don't know if he just carried it around, like had it in the back of his car. It didn't really uh, specify. But I mean, like, this is the worst bit. So like, if the Dessa happened to have like, young children, he would instead pick up the child in his huge arm, open the refrigerator and, with the other and say, if you don't do what you're supposed to, I'm going to lock your kid in the fucking refrigerator. I mean, he doesn't... I, he, he, I don't think there's a I line. Guess, there's yeah. no line for this guy. But also like... At least he's very to the point. Mm. He's just like, look, if you don't want to do, not going to do this, I'm going to do this. I mean, like, pick a pick a team. <laughs> I mean, like, it's yeah, is it as a skill to have as an enforcer? Make that point in as few words as possible. Possibly threatening their children. <laughs> 
So, I mean, like, as an aforesaid dream, he committed a large number of murders. However, no victims have ever been named. But, I mean, I like, guess it's, it's clear that he did, because that's essentially what an enforcer's job is, to kill and beat people up for the mob. So, obviously, he did. But he has no actual, like, but no convictions. on his well, list of... There's one, he's only had, he only has one conviction, or ever had one conviction for murder, but we will get on to that. Okay. Uh, so in the 1950s, he started working his own jobs. This uh, involved mainly distributing untaxed cigarettes and liquor. Uh, around this time, he also met his wife, Michelle, or Mickey, as she was known. So just prior to their marriage, he found out that his soon-to-be wife was being bothered by an ex-boyfriend. Uh-oh, ex-boyfriend's going bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you could kind of see where this is going, but, I mean, like, yeah, this was quite a shock when I read this. So Burke and Mickey were married in 1962. On their wedding day, police found the ex-boyfriend's remains. The boyfriend had been cut <gasps> into more than a dozen pieces and tossed oh. all over the inside of his own car. Oh. So that's one hell of well, a wedding so he present. Thought he could try and make it look like a crash or something. I, I mean, like, that's not going to look like a crash. I, no, I don't think no. it was crashed. He just killed him, cut him up, and just put, just chucked him into his own car. I mean, oh. yeah. But then they didn't have any evidence it was him. No, they never no, they never tied it to him. I don't know how. Well, Clearly it's him. Like, Well, well maybe it's because maybe he not. had so many cops in his like, pocket. I mean, but... Oh. There you go. Happy happy wedding day. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was a wedding day. Happy wedding day. One of his wedding. friends. <laughs> For you, darling, on your wedding day. <laughs> That's so... what I want when I get married, Dan. <laughs> so not long after this, he was made mentor of a number of mob prospects. So this included Henry Hill, who wrote the uh, the book. Tommy DeSimone, the inspiration for Pesky's psychotic DeVito in uh, in Goodfellas. I'm going to actually do a separate episode on him because he's also quite fascinating. Uh, so I'm going to do this like uh, like um, why oh, can't I remember the pirates' names? God, my, I am really hungry. Uh, and, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. There we go. <laughs> um, so, with his own crew, Burr graduated onto hijacking delivery trucks and selling stolen merchandise. So according to Hill, Burke would usually give $50 to the drivers of the trucks they stole, as if he was tipping them for their inconvenience, which led to the nickname Jimmy the Gent. So yeah, despite cutting up ex-boyfriends, he's quite a gent, <laughs> it would seem. What a nice guy. He's got the manners, he's got the manners. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, despite this, Jimmy would ruthlessly eliminate any witnesses. So any witnesses to like uh, carjacking, any truck drivers that refused to take the money, any of that, all dead. Corrupt law enforcement officers bribed by Burke would tell him about any potential witnesses or informants. So this led to as many as 12 or 13 bodies a year would be found tied up, strangled and shot in the trunks of stolen vehicles abandoned to the parking lot surrounding JFK Airport. Cops, yeah. eh? What's, so they were like witnesses? Yeah. He got rid of. Yeah, right. yeah. Delivered him by the police. Yay! Serve and protect. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's supposed to be ironic, like sarcastic, like, oh, yeah, mm. serve and uh, protect. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah, we just didn't get the sarcasm. <laughs> it's all our fault. So. As Henry Hill said about Burke, I like this quote, this quote, this is a good one. Jimmy could plant you just as fast as shake your hands. It didn't matter to him. At dinner, he could be the nicest guy in the world, but then he could blow you away for dessert. Lovely. So, Jimmy also owned a bar in South Ozone Park uh, in Queens called Robert's Lounge. His It was a favourite uh, hangout of Burke and his crew and many other mobsters, bookmakers, loan sharks and other assorted criminals. So, a great place to go. Um, though apparently he did have good, play good music. He played like punk and like rock and stuff. So yeah. probably is somewhere I'd end up. And then that's all right. I sit in the, quietly in the corner. No one had noticed. Play good music. <laughs> um, uh, so Burke ran a a loan shark and bookmaking operation that's based at the bar, and and also held high stakes poker games in the basement, of which he would receive a cut. The basement was also the final resting place of many an unfortunate victim of Burke and his associates. Henry Henry Hill referred to it as Burke's private cemetery. 
Oh no, it's always the basement. I know. Those buried there include Burke's own best friend, Dominic Remo Sassani. So, Sassani was arrested with a small load of hijacked goods and, in exchange for a reduced sentence, informed the New York Police Department about a trailer truckload that Burke was bringing together. So, Burke got suspicious and told his friend uh, when he uh, turned up to his bar, let's take a ride, which is just like the most mobster thing to say ever. (laughs) So, while taking their ride... Tommy DeSone strangled Remo with the piano wire from the backseat oh, no. of the Cadillac. Apparently, he fought viciously and defecated all over the interior, as well as himself, before he slipped away. Oh, no. Yeah. As Henry Hill said, Remo put up some fight. He kicked and swung and shit all over himself before he died. Lovely. Lovely detail oh. there. Thank you for that, Henry. And that body went into the basement. <laughs> oh, yeah. Straight in that basement. Yeah. Apparently, he had him... Buried next to the uh, B-O-C-C-E. What's that? Bocker Court. I guess it's a game. But anyway, yeah. whenever they played Bock there uh, with friends, he would jokingly say, hey, Remo, how you doing? Hey, Remo, how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> uh, Burke also owned a dress factory, uh, also based in South Ozone Park, uh, called Moo Moo Vedders, which kept him awash with laundered money. So that was his... Money laundering business. A dress factory. I mean, quite an interesting pick for uh, such a yeah. deadly it, man. I guess, yeah, I know, but he was using it for money laundering. He oh, wasn't yeah, like, trying to get yeah. into fashion, was he? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in 1972, Jimmy Burke and Henry Hill were arrested for beating up Gaspar Chian- uh Hang on. Chiaccio. I think Chiaccio, yeah. Gaspar Chiaccio in Tampa, Florida, who allegedly owed a large gambling debt to their friend, the union boss, Casey Rosado. I love that unions are all just tied up with like organized crime in America. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Maybe that's the same here. We just don't know about it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe actually like Unison are like a massive mob. <laughs> I guess because like they don't actually have a party in America. Yeah. There's no like party for unions, so they just need some other like power source, and that's just organized crime. <laughs> They're like. <laughs> We don't have any politicians, so <laughs> mobsters. So for they had this, a vote and they voted for mobsters. <laughs> so for this, they were charged with extortion, uh, convicted, and sentenced to ten years in federal prison. Burke was paroled after six, and then obviously went straight back to crime, as did uh, Henry Hill. Uh, of course they, of course they did. Like, so around this time, I mean, they had nothing else to do. They, yeah. <laughs> So around this time, uh, Henry Hill decided to start trafficking in drugs. Burke soon uh, joined this enterprise, even though the Lucchese family, uh, with whom they were associated, did not authorise any of its members to deal in drugs. This was because prison sentences imposed on anyone convicted of drug trafficking were so lengthy that the accused would usually become informants uh, in exchange for lighter sentences. Which is exactly what Henry Hill, as anyone that has watched the film would know, would eventually do. Oh, spoilers. So, oh, good fellow spoilers, by the way, everyone. <laughs> so, Jimmy's crowning moment came with the planning and execution of the List Hansa heist. Uh, the plot began when Martin Krugman, a small time Burke controlled bookmaker, told Henry Hill Lufthansa flew in currency to its cargo terminal at JFK International Airport. So, he'd been told this information by Lufthansa cargo supervisor Louis, Louis uh, Werner. Or Werner? Then, yeah, who owed a large gambling debt to Krugman, so he owed about twenty twenty thousand dollars in debt, gambling debt. So that's equivalent to eighty four thousand dollars in today's. Ooh, yeah, ouch! Pretty, pretty yikes. A lot. So, with this information, Burke planned the heist and recruited the crew that was to do the job. So he decided on Tommy DeSimone, obviously the psychopath who had. Uh, strangled his best friend in the car for him uh angelo seppe who was one of his um one of his uh apprentices i think uh louis uh Cafora, joe manry paolo lacastri uh and robert mcmahon as the robbers nice uh, he good would... job on all of those names <laughs> he would also recruit parnell Stax edwards as the getaway driver 
So there would be two two vehicles. Burke's son Frank would drive one, which was the crash car, which would be used to crash into the cops uh, were they to get involved. And there would also be a van for the loot. So that, w- that was the uh, vehicle that would be driven by Edwards. It would also be Edwards' job to dispose of the van following the job. So, on December the 11th, 1978, around 3am, the six men in a black Ford pulled up to the Lufthansa Cargo Building 261. The padlock on the gate was cut with a pair of bolt cutters, and then a late model Buick positioned itself in the terminal uh, parking lot with its lights off. Inside the terminal, John Murray, a senior cargo agent, was the first employee to be taken hostage. As he walked into the lunchroom where five other Lufthansa employees were on their meal break since it was 3 a.m., I'd hate to work like night shifts. Like that's your that's your lunch break, three in the morning. Night shift. That's fuck that shit. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just thought you were talking about like the mobs. Oh no, being no. on a, like night shift, and I was like, yeah. No, I mean working. No, but you're Lufthansa. actually talking about this food. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so all were ordered to lie flat on the floor with their eyes closed. Murray asked who else was in the warehouse, and they said Ruby uh, Elrich. Uh, who was the night shift cargo manager, and Kerry Whalen, the uh, cargo uh, transfer agent, uh, were both in the uh, warehouse. So Murray was uh, forced to lure Elrich to come upstairs, and he joined uh, the rest of the captured employees. So outside the terminal, Whalen, I think he was paroling around, I think he might have been one of the security guards, he noticed two unmasked men sitting in the black van parked at the uh, Lufthansa cargo building ramp. He walked over to the van to check out who was inside. He was met with a gun in the face. They told him to get the fuck in the van. Wayne screamed for help and ran, but was quickly pistol whipped and thrown into the van the hard way. So he was brought to join the other hostages in the lunchroom. Uh-oh. Inside the warehouse, employee Rolf Redman heard a noise by the loading ramp and went to investigate. He was too beaten up and brought with Waylon into the lunchroom. So they never told him about this guy, but he was in there as well and he was just captured. Then some of the robbers took Elrich at gunpoint to the double door vault, which he was forced to unlock. They removed 72 15 pound cartons of untraceable money and other valuables from the vault and chucked it in the van. At 4.21am, the van pulled out, pulled to the front of the building. The crash car pulled out behind and they made their escape. The employees were told not to call the Port Authority police until 4.30am. Uh, the gang also took told their by wallets. Who? Oh, told by the gang. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gang also took their, uh, the wallets of all employees, saying that if the police were called any earlier, each of their families would be killed. Yeah, that's how they do it. Take, yeah. take your ID. <laughs> Like I like I know, but yeah, I remember, <laughs> uh, yeah. I remember well. After that, the uh, the robbers drove to meet Burke and also repair shop uh, in Brooklyn. The box of money removed from the van, placed in the trunks of two new cars. Burke and his son drove off in one car. Four others, Manry, uh, McMahon, De Simone, and Sepe, drove away in the second car. So the job was predicted to make two million. In actuality, the job made close to six million. Six oh, million. I mean, in that mu- in those days as well, that is just obscene. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's obscene now. Yeah, but still. But just, like... Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Burke and his son drove the fur with all the stolen money to a safe house to be counted, and that is when it, Burke realized the true scope of the robbery. So Burke's take from the robbery was believed to have been a little over two million. Another two million went to Lucci's crime family captain. Paul Vario, he's uh, his buddy, his way into the mob. And the remainder was dispersed among the people who supported the robbery. So it was like, kind of like funded it or like whatever, like just kind of like put their kind of, I guess, like intellectual like input in. Because the actual robbers themselves, the guys that actually did the job, received the sh- the smaller share. So that yeah, was anywhere but from 10,000 to 50,000, depending on their role in the robbery. I mean, uh, the robbery. I mean, that's just capitalism action, isn't it? This is crazy. It's just like the most extreme form, like yeah. sending people in to do a crime. Well, we know this is crime, them. but we're actually yeah. going to make it capitalism. <laughs> but I mean, like, that's what's so interesting about this. I, I we could talk about that, like, at the end, actually. But, like, yeah, just, just like, just mob action in general is just like, it's just that system. It, like on steroids, really. 
Anyway. So yeah. So, so yeah, basically, other than like Vario and Berg, few participants in the robbery received more than fifty thousand pounds, and also few of them lived more than six months. <gasps> yeah, now it's gonna get it's gonna get crazy. So, Parnell Stacks Edwards had failed to get rid of the van that had been used in the heist. Oh, Edwards. No was supposed to have driven the vehicle to New Jersey where it, along with any potential evidence aside, was to be destroyed in a junkyard belonging to John Gotti. Instead, Edwards parked the van in front of a fire hydrant in a no-parking zone outside his girlfriend's apartment where he subsequently got high and fell asleep. The police... Oh, no. Yeah, you can see where this is going. The police yeah. discovered it two days after the heist. I mean, like, I don't know how he managed to get so high that he fell asleep for two days. I surely just go to and be like, oh shit, I need to take that bloody van. I'll, Maybe I'll go when you say that. hi, you mean like meth. As yeah, that's true, to... yeah. Yeah, just because then you're there for like a week. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I'm basing this off Breaking Bad, but you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> so the police, yeah, the police, oh, I've done that. They discovered it. Uh, so following this, Paul Vario, apparently it was Paul Vario that. that um, ordered this but i'm not sure i've also read that it was burke himself but subsequently ordered uh de simone to kill edwards so once he found out where edwards was hiding de simone and angelo seppe visited edwards and shot him five times in the head i mean you probably don't need to but i guess they're trying to make a point seems excessive <laughs> your point is probably made like after <laughs> yeah. the first time you shoot someone in the head unfortunately well not unfortunately but from the van fingerprints were lifted and uh, so they they were able to identify several of the perpetrators of the robbery. So this freaked Jimmy the fuck out. Mm. So the FBI were able to identify Burke's crew as the likely perpetrators. Uh, so this, coupled with Edward's pre-established connections with the Burke gang, meant that they were on their tails. So they set up heavy surveillance following the gang in helicopters and bugging their vehicles, the phones at Robert's Lounge, and even the payphones nearest to the bar. The FBI even managed to record a few bits of chatter from the, the, the bar, despite the loud music in the background. Punk rock and, and rock music, apparently, so good taste. Um <laughs> Such as Angelo Seppi telling an unidentified man about a big brown case and a bag from Lufthansa and telling his girlfriend, Hope, I want to, I want to see, look, where the money's at, dig a hole in the cellar, inaudible, rear lawn. I mean, like, it kind of points to it, but it's definitely not enough to, to like, to convict Burke and his crew. Yeah. Um, for it's the not, heist. like, reasonable doubt, is it? Yeah. So no search warrants were issued. However, according to Henry Hill... Jimmy Burke became paranoid and agitated once he realised how much attention Edward's failure had drawn and resolved to kill anyone who could implicate him in the heist. So he was taking no chances. And so, Martin Krugman, the bookmaker. So he's the guy that uh, the passed the information on uh, to Henry Hill from the inside guy uh, at Lufthansa. He was eventually murdered and dismembered by Burke and Seppe. Uh, in Vincent Asaro's fence factory, I guess that made garden fences. I guess so. Yeah. After yeah. his increasingly nervous and angry demands for his 500,000 cut from the robbery. So this convinced Burke he was about to inform the FBI uh, on the plan. Henry Hill later claims that Krugerman's remains were buried in Robert's uh, basement, in Robert's lounge, in the, in the base, the bar, the, ba- la, the bar of the basement. The basement no. of the bar. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Eaton so he was uninvolved with the actual heist but was tortured and murdered by Burke after absconding with $250,000 of Burke's money in a fake cocaine scam skimming some of the money from the heist while he was uh, while it was uh, being laundered through uh, legitimate establishments he was found hogtied and gagged on the floor of an abandoned tractor uh, of an abandoned tractor trailer uh, in a garbage strewn lot in Brooklyn by a bunch of children who were playing there. That's pretty oh, horrible. No. Oh no, poor baby. Tom Monteleone. So he was also not involved in the heist. However, he uh, owned the Players Club, a local bar frequented by Burke's gang members, and was accused by Burke of conspiring with Eaton and Ferrara 
on the fake cocaine deal and skimming part of the heist money while laundering it through his club. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to him. I don't think his body was ever found, but he disappeared, essentially. Hmm. Louis Kafora. So Kafora had been Burke's cellmate during his time in prison and was contacted by Burke to launder some money uh, from the heist through his collection of legitimate lots. Kafora's indiscreet, gaudy lifestyle and insistence on informing his wife Joanna about gang business, including the heist, eventually led Burke to ordering both to be murdered. So, oh no. then days of the heist and against Burke's orders, um, Kafora bought his wife a custom pink Cadillac. That's in the film, actually, um, with the share of the heist, and brazenly drove it to a, a meeting just blocks from the JK, uh, JFK uh, Air Cargo Center, where the FBI was still investigating the crime. So neither body was ever found. Wait, him and his wife. Both, both, yeah, both oh, dead. Never, never wife. found. Joe Buddha uh, Manry. So Manry was a long-time Burke gang associate, and his inside information helped uh, plan the heist. Manry was, was repeatedly offered the opportunity to turn uh, informer uh, against the gang and enter witness the witness protection program. Um, however, Manry refused these offers. Still, Manry was found dead in a park uh, alongside McMahon, who was also uh, one of the uh, one of the heistmen. Five months after the heist, shot execution style in the back of the head. So he really is getting super paranoid. He's oh just yeah, killing, he's like, killed everyone, everyone that knows like anything or doesn't know anything. Yeah, Robert McMahon, uh, Air France night shift supervisor at John uh, at JFK uh, International Airport. He was a uh, one of the men who was involved in the job who actually did the robbery. He was found dead in the parked car alongside Manry uh, five months after the heist. Also shot in the back of the head, execution style. Paolo Licastri. Sicilian born, he was a drug trafficker and Gambino crime family associate. He was not involved in, uh, in the heist either, but was a liaison from the Gambino family whose job it was to oversee the plans and to ensure, the, uh, ensure that the Gambinos received their $200,000 cut. His naked, bullet-ridden corpse was discovered on a burning trash heap six months no. after the heist. Oh, so, trash heap. Just gross. But to be fair, they were all mobsters, so, like... <laughs> yeah, but still. I feel that bad. But, I mean, like, it is quite crazy that he just went on that massive killing spree. Yeah, it was just like, you know what? what what's the logical thing to do <laughs> I know, let's just kill everyone. But it kind of works. So with all the murders, most of the heist associates and planners, uh, uh, little evidence and few witnesses remained connecting Burke or his crew to the heist, or the remaining crew to the heist at least. Which meant they went free. Yeah, because no one talked. <laughs> because everyone was dead. So it wasn't anyone from the heist that uh, that led to uh, to Jimmy's downfall. However... It was uh, Mr. Henry Hill, the writer of the book that Goodfellas is based on. And for exactly the reason why the Lucchese family wouldn't allow people to get involved in narcotics. So, in April 1980, Henry Hill was arrested on unrelated narcotics charges. He became convinced that his former associates planned to have him killed. Vario for drug dealing against the Lucchese family wishes and Burke to prevent Hill from implicating, implicating him in the heist. So with a long sentence hanging over him, Hill agreed to become an informant and entered the witness protection program with his family. Do we know how long his sentence would have been? No, I think it would have been like... like over 10 tw- years? Yeah, I think we have probably yeah. been going to like Because they've got like mandatory minimums and stuff there, don't they, yeah. for drug charges. So. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. For but some people over. on drug charges are in there longer than like murder. Yeah. Which is just obscene, really. It's absolutely obscene. But I don't know if it, maybe they just do it for this sort of stuff. It's just a way of. Yeah, it's a way. I guess it's a way of like getting around because some people. This is kind of off topic, but some people get done on other charges when they're yeah can't get them for like murder and stuff. Like I was listening to one podcast that was saying this guy had like clearly murdered this yeah this, like two guys had clearly murdered this other guy. But they couldn't get either of them on murder, so they've got them both on accessory to murder. Really? But no, with no murderer. <laughs> That's really. It was crazy. just like, what? How did you? <laughs> they just like go around it. They're like, we couldn't get either of them on murder, but how about we like do accessory for both of them? It was really weird. 
That's like when they to get like mob bosses, they just get them on tax evasion. Yeah, or like, or and like they just make the those really right? long. Yeah, he gets, he gets them for something really minor. But then they just make like tax evasion, like jail sentences, really long. Yeah, like tax evasion, twenty years. <laughs> yeah, it's just like this guy's. America does have a really messed up legal system. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so yeah. Uh, so he wasn't actually able to help the government obtain convictions against Vario or Burke for the Lufthansa heist. However, they were able to convict them for other crimes as a result of his testimony. So according to Hill, a search warrant for Robert's lounge was granted by a judge after his evidence. But by the time the police arrived, Burke had already relocated the bodies he'd buried there. Still, partially as a result... Wait, he test- re- relocated all of the bodies? Yeah, they managed to clear them all out. I guess like as soon oh as he Hill, Hill disappeared, they were like, get rid of him. Grim. That is that is yeah. a really gross job. Half, like, half yeah. like decomposed bodies. Yeah, that's fucking oh. horrible. However, as a result of the testimony of Hill, Burke was taken into custody on uh, April the 1st, 1980, on suspicion of... Uh, of a number of other crimes. In 1982, he was convicted of fixing... See, this is what I mean about America's like weird system going around these. In 1982, he was convicted of fixing Boston College basketball games as part what? of a point of shaving... Uh, as a part of a point-shaving gambling scam. I don't know what that means, but I guess well, it's a thing. No, actually, this happened in One Tree Hill. So this is where my Did One it? Tree Hill knowledge comes out. So they like... <laughs> and it was literal college basketball. Really? He was like, what? I think it might have even been high school basketball, not even college, where it was like they went up to the, the, the high school college boys and they're like, yeah, you're going to be rubbish this game. But yeah, it's crazy how like important like college and school football is in, in America. Like, yeah, it's really as love big it. as like, yeah. Yeah, they love it. It's like professional stuff. Go Buckeyes! <laughs> um, so to this, yeah, hang on. So he just got committed for that one thing, or were there other things? Uh, well, for this, for um, shaving for a point, a point shaving gambling scam, he was sentenced for tw- to twenty years in prison. Twenty That's years so without, without parole. Oh. Burke protested. All I did was give the little bastard some bucks to bet on games. That's all. It's referring to Hill. So the authorities knew that he planned and organised the Lufthansa eyes. But they never had enough uh, evidence to prove it in a court of law. Um, also, although Burke was suspected of committing more than fifty murders, he was only ever convicted for one: the Richard, the, the murder of Richard Eaton. So that's the one that was found uh, hogtied and gagged on the floor of an abandoned tractor trailer in the garbage-strewn lot in Brooklyn and discovered by the children. So, ah, so what, d- how did they get him on that one? Uh, it's just because he didn't like properly dispose of the bodies. Um, apparently, if he had disposed of Eaton in the same way he disposed of most of his victims, uh, he probably would have been out of jail before he died. Um, but instead, he kind of like tried to make a point, I think, through leaving his body there. Uh, as it was winter time, uh, his body was kind of like well pres- preserved when it was found, and the detectives also found a small address book sewn into the lining of Eaton's clothing with the name, address, and telephone number of. James Burke uh, listed in the book. So based on this evidence and Henry Hill's testimony, uh, they were able to convict him of that. But I don't really know how just having a address book would... I mean, like, I guess it ties him to guess, Burke. Yeah, it but... definitely ties him to that, and then maybe that's just, like, yeah. another nail in the coffin kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um... Oh, yes, okay, right. So basically what, what Hill said... Um, in court was that um, Eaton had convinced Burke to invest a quarter of a million in the cocaine deal that promised immense profit. Um, Eaton, however, just kept the money for his own use. Um, so then after that happened, Eaton just kind of like didn't show up at Burke's bar anymore. And when he'd be, when he'd uh, been away for a while, uh, Hill apparently asked Burke where, where Eaton was. And Burke replied, don't worry about him. I whacked the fucking swinder out. <laughs> So oh. there we go. That's uh, hmm. it's pretty. It's pretty, pretty good definite. evidence. Yeah. <laughs> if it's true, which I'm sure it is. Um, 
Da, 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 da. Yeah, so I so Burke told Hill that this would be a lesson to two other drug dealers who'd not paid Burke yet. So that's why he was left in the in the parking lot to uh, mm. to make a to make a point. Um, for that, he was given a life sentence. Um, but while he was being taken down, he protested. The bastard died of hypothermia. <laughs> what? He had bullet holes in him. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough, Jimmy the Gent. Whatever you say. Sure thing. So, following his uh, conviction, he was taken away from uh, New York on an airplane. As he flew over the city, he looked down at JFK Airport and said to the officer sitting beside him, Once upon a time, that was all mine. Oh, that's almost enough to bring a tear to your eye, isn't it? Poor Jimmy. <laughs> sweet, sweet Jimmy. Back served a time in Wend, Wend? Wend Correctional Facility in Alden, New York, uh, where he developed a lung cancer. He died from the disease on the 13th of April, 1996, aged 64, while being treated at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo, New York. Ah, Had he lived... quite young. Yeah, yeah, really young. Had he lived, he would have been eligible for parole in 2004, aged 73. Despite everything he did, (laughs) he would have been... Just because he'd been eligible for for, for, Uh, parole, he doesn't mean he was going to get parole. True. Uh, so it's rumoured that he buried a portion of his loot from the 1978 Lufthansa heist um, at the site of his childhood foster home. So if that's true, then his family had yeah. If anyone lives around millions, there. <laughs> <laughs> go um, digging. So apparently, for over two decades, Burke was the wealthiest and most powerful Irish gangster in America. He is considered by the FBI to be the most powerful and dangerous Irish gangster of all time. By 1977, Burke had become a billionaire in what? like 70s terms. Like in 70s terms. I mean, like yeah. I mean, like but like a billionaire like in the 70s. Like if now that like it would just be obscene money. Yeah, it'd be like his a Jeff Bezos style yeah. money. His uh, extraordinary wealth and power continued to uh, rapidly and endlessly grow to the point where he became one of the richest and most powerful gangsters in America. Like just of all gangsters. Um. So yeah, so when he was put away, he had a staggering net worth of a whopping two billion. Uh, over the years, Burke had cops, judges, politicians uh, in his pocket throughout the whole of New York. Although there were a lot of Italian mobsters that were billionaires at this time, uh, and even though there were a lot of Italian mobsters that were wealthier and far more powerful than him, he would become the first non-Italian that was just as respected, if not all respected, than a, a made man or high-ranking member of the American Mafia. So such, such as uh, captains or lieutenants. So that includes his buddy, Paul Vario. The five families of New York apparently respected and admired Burke, Burke and looked at him as an equal to all made men within the, America, the Italian-American Mafia. Burke was also weirdly highly respected by law enforcement for being a criminal genius and his ingenious ability to make enormous amounts of money in such small periods of time. Um, yeah, I mean, like, he it was, like, incredibly rich. Like, apparently, he once gave $10 million to each of the bosses of the five families for a Christmas present. There you go. Just $10 million. There you Nice. Go. That is Kanye Boom. levels of, like, <laughs> present giving. He did that to Kim once. He just gave her a million dollars. Really? Like her, like <laughs> Boom, just in a suitcase. Just like um, a check. No, he gave her a check. Really? A million dollars. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't trust that. Is that going to bounce? Where's my million dollars? What a bastard. Um, he is a bit mad. <laughs> he was uh, widely feared all over the United States. And uh, incredibly respected. Uh, he has been described by mobsters all over New York as a true gangster. And there you have it. And um, Hill just Jimmy lived out Burke. his days in, in witness protection, right? Yeah, Hill, yeah. Now he's just writing books. And I think he's quite rich from write, essentially writing Goodfellas. Yeah, I'm sure he is. But I mean, like, it's a good film, that. Like, it's interesting. It's a great film. It's, it's like the best yeah, definitely. gangster film, I think. I mean, like, in my opinion. They all obviously make a ton of money, but it does show us how freaking grim like a life of crime really is just how broken he is in his little drug hole at the end when he thinks he's gonna die and they're just like sitting they're just like cool, curled up in a ball in the like corner of his bedroom just crying and it's just like yeah i'm glad i don't live that life <laughs> yeah oh it's horrendous but i mean it's so weird isn't it just how fascinated 
people are. I mean, I, I I'm totally fascinated. But just like, especially like American organized crime. There's just something quite crazy and perverse and fascinating about it. Yeah, you should watch McMillions. It's weird. It's like McDonald's with gangsters. Oh yeah, I've seen that series. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, not you. I mean, like oh, the yeah, audience the at home should watch the- it. You've got to watch it for that FBI agent who's just he should have star of the show. show. Yeah. yeah, I'd watch it. Uh, what What are you doing this evening after this? Uh, what am I gonna do? Well, I'm gonna watch something. What are we watching? What have we got planned? Oh, that's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna show Charlotte because I don't know how she's never watched it. Like Total Recall, the original, obviously. What? I've never seen it. No, and it's oh, just like one of my. Stuff favorite sci-fi one of my favorite films of all time it might be you've my favorite together, sci-fi like over oh. 10 years and you've never I know. seen it never seen it. it's terrible well, i'm gonna write that wrong tonight and show her the gloriousness of arnold schwarzenegger on a on the on mars see you at the party rector <laughs> <laughs> um we're watching on well the new netflix series it's uh, about like yeah alternative medicine basically Nice. So there's one about yeah, like homeopathy, which is like just don't ingest essential oils, everyone. <laughs> and then, then we just watched the one like a couple of days ago, the people that drink breast milk oh, for like yeah. health benefits. Don't do that either. That's also That's weird, weird and um also the... probably won't work for you as well as you think it will because yeah, breast milk is designed for the baby that it's producing it for. Yeah. Because of like the DNA aspect. So just just it's... drink milk. It's... It's and also it's just weird. Drink, just drink protein human, shakes. Like, human it's fine. juice. Yeah. I mean, like, is it is it a bit cannibalistic? I don't know. I don't know. If no, they... I think. I mean, people drink them in urine and stuff. So. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Not one I know personally. <laughs> yeah, not something I, I tend to indulge in. But I mean, <laughs> tend. To. I mean, sa- sailors have. Yeah, I mean, they get lost. Water, water all around, and not a drop to drink. You know, sometimes you've yeah. got a. Drink your own urine. Gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, please do subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Have You Ever Pod. And uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>